Exodus chapter 33, and I'm just going to begin by, by reading a portion of Scripture. And as I say, we will get back to it um, a little bit later this morning. But uh, Exodus chapter 33, uh, and we're going to read verses 12 to 16 to just lay the foundation uh, this morning. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you, all, you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know how, to, how you in order, or that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not with your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Father, thanks for a moment or two in your word now. Thank you for your word, which is such a help to us and such a light to us. We take it for granted, we ignore it, and yet it is true. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it will endure, though this world will fail away. Make the book live as it is the living word of God. Make it live in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you're with us, uh, just visiting, um, or just a short while, I've just done something a little different in the last, uh, last week and this week, and it's an opportunity for you, for me to just share a little bit of my heart and what uh, matters to me and what makes me tick and how I've been thinking about the church for, for so many years. And, um, I want to kind of invite you to think about the church the same way that I am thinking of it. Uh, last week we spent some time looking at six big rocks, six things that I think ought to be the foundation or the cornerstone of who we are and what we do as a, as a body of Christ. And we will eventually put them in a sort of a written display form and have them around the church for you to, to look at. And um, I mentioned sort of uh, six things that I'm praying for, and I'll mention a seventh, but here are simply them. I pray for a church that is biblical. I pray for a church that worships the one and true God. I pray for a church that is a praying church. I pray for a church that is a caring church. I pray for a church that is a serving church. I pray for a church that is an expectant church. And then this morning, I want to add one more and then expand a little bit on it. I pray for a church that is a gospel-focused, gospel-driven church. I want us to have an external focus. I think it's not right for us to only be internally strong. We need to be externally focused as well. And as I've mentioned a few times again over the last number of weeks, that it's growing in my heart that somehow God would allow us as a church and as a congregation to give everyone in Oceanside an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ and perhaps accept him as their Lord and Savior. And so I pray for a gospel-focused church. Now, loved ones, the gospel is not just about evangelism that we've chatted about uh, and sung about even this morning. And maybe over the weeks and months, I will come back to this even in a fuller form because the gospel really impacts all of our life. The gospel impacts our marriages. The gospel impacts the way that we give. The gospel impacts our relationships. So being a gospel-focused church does not just mean that we share the good news of the gospel. But that's where I want to concentrate most of our time on 
this morning. Because gospel-focused means that Christ is the center of our church. Christ is the center of our teaching and our preaching. As we often have been singing the last number of weeks, show me Christ when we come to the Word of God. Because I believe and we understand that Christ is everywhere in the Bible. That the Bible is focused on Christ. And in fact, when Jesus was walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, after he'd been raised from the dead, and they didn't yet know who he was, as Jesus was talking to them, Luke records that beginning with Moses and then all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures about the things concerning himself. So the Old Testament points to Christ. The New Testament points to Christ. And so being a gospel-focused church means that we look for Christ in his word. But even more narrowly or more specifically, to mean to be a gospel-focused church means that the good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ is front and center of what we say and we do. As I mentioned a number of weeks ago, probably uh, four or five weeks ago, that one of the uh, one one blog that I was reading was trying to summarize the gospel in nine words or less. And probably the best summary of the gospel that uh, one of them presented was from Romans chapter 4, which simply says this, delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Jesus Christ was crucified for our missteps, for our transgressing the boundary, for our sins, for our trespasses. Jesus Christ died in our place, and he was raised by God so that we might be in a right relationship with God. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. And so the good news ought to be front and center of what we do. I was thinking of Paul who, as he went to the church in Corinth and other churches, says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The centrality of the cross and the gospel. In another place in Romans, I've chatted about this before. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. It is the gospel, it is the good news that brings people from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from slavery to freedom. And we ought not to be ashamed of it. Mark uh, 16 verse 15 says, "Go." Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. In another place, Isaiah 57, 2. Last uh, Sunday, a few, few, few people sort of laughed at me and made fun of me that I talked about stinky feet. Well, in Isaiah, it talks about beautiful feet. And some of you know the text. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, it's an image. It's a way of saying, thank you, Lord, that somebody took time to walk my pathway. To leave where they were and walk towards me. How beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. In another text, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we read there, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Every single person here this morning who is a follower of Jesus is an ambassador We talk about ambassadors. We know what they are. We send them to other countries to represent our country. We have ambassadors in almost every country in the world. It's a it's a job that they go and they represent the sending country. 
Well, every single one who is a follower of Jesus Christ is an ambassador for Christ. So you go to your school, to your home, to your neighborhood, to your workplace as a representative of Jesus Christ. And what is our mission? What do we represent? Well, we implore people on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for salvation. We are ambassadors for good news. Because we know that for our sake, God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, in a nutshell, is our job as ambassadors. We plead with people, we appeal to people, be reconciled to God. That is what it means to be a gospel-focused, gospel-driven church. So what is at the heart of the gospel then? It's God revealing himself through Christ and bringing us back into a relationship with him. And the fingerprints of God are everywhere. We've talked about this before, how God has revealed himself in creation. It's a stunning world that we live in. It's an ordered world. It's an organized world. It's a world that makes sense. And the Bible tells that the heavens declare the glory of God, that the invisible attributes of God are displayed in this world. But even more precisely, the image of God is reflected in you and I, most profoundly in us as his creation. We, inside and out, are made in the image of God. That is hard to understand. But we are marred. We have been covered with the impact and the result of sin. Sometimes it's difficult to recognize the image of God in one another. But nonetheless, every single one of us reflects, however dimly, the image of God who has created us. And when we were created, we were created with this amazing purpose. We were created, we were cre- created to, to rule this world that God had made, to be in a relationship with this God. And that was God's design for us to be His friend, to be in relationship with the Creator. We have been, we have a Creator designed with a purpose and direction, and we are responsible, or we're responsible to Him for how we live. In Him we live and move and have our being. Trouble is, something went wrong. Something went terribly wrong. It went wrong in the garden when our father and mother, Adam and Eve, decided that they would go their own way. And as a result of their disobedience, every single one of us has been impacted. And every single one of us has now chosen, as they did, to say no to God and yes to ourselves. And the good news of the gospel, if anyone comes to you and says, I've got good news for you, you're okay. They're not telling you the truth. In fact, the Bible utterly rejects, or the Bible utterly rejects the statement that we are fundamentally good people. We are anything but okay. Scripture tells us that all of us have sinned. We have all missed this mark that God has set for us. And our sin is so serious that we need new birth. We need to be born again from the inside out. We need to be recreated, to be created all over again. Because another place in Scripture tells us that as a result of our sin, we are spiritually dead. So we are actually dead men and women walking. 
And we need new life. And so we have trespassed. And to trespass means to cross over a boundary, to step over a line. And while our trespass might not seem blatant or offensive to others, they are nonetheless offensive and blatant before God, where he says, the wages of sin, therefore, is death. So that's our state. Every single human being created in the image of God, created good, but now marred because of our sin. We have fallen short. We have rebelled against God and his perfect plan for us. And that rebellion is our sin. And sin has resulted, therefore, in our eternal separation from God. Note that. Not just temporal, eternal separation from God. As we sang in that last song, outside of Christ, we are hell-bound. So what do we do? Well, there's something to admit. This is the simplicity of the gospel. There's something to admit. And the thing that we simply have to admit is that that is true of me. I am a sinner. I am not perfect. I do lie from once in a while. I do steal. I do not worship God as I should. I, I do sometimes envy the, the, the Ten Commands. That there is within all of us this reality that, yes, I have sinned. I have fallen short of what God calls me to do. I am aware that there are dark secrets in my heart that nobody knows about. I am aware of things that I do and I think and I say that are contrary to what God wants me to do and think or say. The Bible tells the truth about our dark side. Not very many other religions do that. It talks about our inner world and our alienation from God, about our shame and our guilt, about the reality outside of us, which is Jesus Christ. And so the good news, people, the good news is not that we are okay. But that is not where it ends. Because the truth is that God has planned a way for us that we might be okay. That we might find a relationship with him. Some of you have heard this from time to time. Jesus just wants to be your friend. It's kind of the old Eddie's father sort of thing. People, let me tell you about my best friend. The warm-hearted person who loves me to the end. Some of you know that. That's what we think about. There you go. That's what we think about a relationship with Jesus. He's just my best friend, warm-hearted, true to the end. But the gospel is so much more than that Jesus is our buddy and our friend. See, real sins have been committed. A real separation exists. A real barrier has been set up. And Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. Jesus Christ is our lamb. And John's gospel, as Jesus was walking towards John, John looked at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In another place, we read there that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is not just our friend. In fact, he is not first our friend. He is first our Savior. He is first our sacrifice. Sometimes we think our sins are no big deal. Sometimes we think that God just simply needs to, to say, oh, well, we'll just kind of forgive and forget. But we forget to realize that the cross and the resurrection together form the foundation of our salvation. That Jesus died for us, that our sins might be forgiven, and that we might then enter into a relationship with him. And so that's simply part of the gospel. We just have to admit that. 
to admit that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And that's the second thing, something to believe. That Jesus is the only Savior from the sin to which we have just admitted. Jesus said in one place, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so in Jesus, we realize that God has made provision for that sin, for that darkness, for that alienation, for that shame, for that guilt. For John writes, we see real love, not in the fact that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What then are we to do? He says there's something to consider. We need to just consider, what does it mean then if I admit that I'm a sinner? that I believe that Jesus has died in my place, what do I need to consider? Well, I need to consider the cost. I'm not mistaking you. There is a cost to following Jesus Christ. And that cost is everything. But it's a wonderful everything. Because we give up slavery. We give up hurt. We give up pain. We give up hopelessness. We give up lostness. And we gain freedom. We gain forgiveness. We gain a clean conscience. We gain a wonderful new life in Christ Jesus. But you need to consider that because the Bible says, um, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all right to himself. Carry his cross every day and keep close behind me. For the man who wants to save his life will lose it, but the man who loses his life for my sake will save it. The cost is simple, but it's profound. It means saying no to my sin, my selfishness, my self-centeredness, and saying yes to Jesus. So there is a cost involved. And then finally, there's something to do. And right away we think, oh, here it is. I knew there was a catch. And there's a lot of places where they say, okay, well, now you need to do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll be accepted by God. Once you clean up your life and get it in order, then you'll be accepted by God. Once you give enough money and serve enough, then you'll be accepted by God. That's not what I mean. There's something to do. If you've admitted your need, if you have um, um, considered that Christ is the way, then what we have to do is simply say, I receive what Christ has to give to me. It means that I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I say, I don't understand this all. I don't know how it works. I know who I am inside and I want to be different. And I know somehow, Jesus, that you have paid my price, taken my place, died for me, been raised by the Father. I believe that. And you are saved. I don't understand it. But if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, we become a follower of Jesus Christ. Peter, when he said to the crowd, he preached to the crowd and they were convicted of their sin and they said, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel, loved ones. And so when we talk about being a gospel-focused church and we talk about being a a gospel-driven church, it just means that we're okay with that and we can talk to people easily and clearly about that and, and we pray that as we talk about that, people will say, I need that, Jesus. I need to have him in my life. That is the gospel.
And so I pray for a church that is gospel-driven, whose people are filled with the power of the Spirit and are emboldened by Him to go, go across the street and around the world, where it is said of us that we have beautiful feet, whose members are ambassadors for Christ, a people who are not ashamed of the gospel, who share the good news of Jesus simply, naturally, and enthusiastically with all who come across their path. And when we leave this place, the Word of God sounds forth from us, and a people who have a global vision and is constantly challenging its young people to give their lives in service and constantly sending its people out to serve. As we mentioned last week, let's go get some of them for Jesus. I pray that we be a gospel-focused church. So those are some of the big rocks. But how do we put that then into perspective and begin to put feet to this as a church? This is where I want us to come back to Exodus 33 just for the rest of our time here together this morning. And the first thing that I think it's important that we understand is that we need to be a presence-driven church. And if you have time today or through this week, I'd encourage you to read Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34 because they go together. And when you understand what's going in in that passage, you understand that in, in, in verse 32, we have the culmination of the people's utter rejection of the presence of God. That as Moses has gone up on their behalf to talk to God, find out about the Ten Commandments, find out about God's will for them, he's gone and at some point in his departure, the people start to say, ah, I guess God's gone too. The God who led us out of Egypt is gone. So we're going to throw our stuff into a fire and, ooh, out comes a calf. Let's worship this calf. And so they start worshiping this golden calf. And it's their way of saying, we don't need God any longer. What they lost was the presence of God in their midst. If you recall that and when they were people were leaving the land of Egypt, as they were leaving, God said to them, Now I will go before you in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that was his presence. In fact, in some places, it says that the presence of God was in the pillar of fire. And so that was a symbol of God's presence. And when the cloud moved, they moved. When the fire moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. Their eyes were always on those that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire because that symbolized the presence of God. And they would only go when God left. If God stood still, they stood still. And so when they wanted to, when God said it's time to get up, he would start moving. So we need to be a presence-driven church. But some of the things that we need to reflect on are, are firstly that the presence of the Lord is not guaranteed. And this should wake us up just a little bit. The first six verses, and we don't have time to look at them carefully this morning, even as carefully as I had wanted to look at them. But the first six verses tell us that God cannot be present with sin. And until we make sure that there's nothing in our lives, personally or corporately, we are in dangerous footing. At the end of verse 32, the Lord said to Moses, But now you go, lead the people to a place out of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. They've lost the presence of God now. It's his angel that is going before them. And he says to them, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This was traumatic. God was distancing himself from his people. And God was saying, because of your sin, I can't ignore it and turn the other way. And as the chapter goes on, uh, verse 1 and verse 2, we see God saying, well, you need to go and I'm going to give you the land. But you get to verse 3 and God says to them, but I'm not going with you. 
that should shatter us. That should stun us to think that we can walk this sort of walk without God's presence going with us. And as the, as, as we read in verse three and we see God's distancing, we realize that they would still enjoy something of the protection and the provision of God, but from afar. Why? Why was God backing off? Verse four, because he says there, you are a stiff necked people. And if I go up among you, I will consume you. Because God is unable to dwell in the presence of sin. You come to verse 4 and the people say there and they cry out. And I don't know if this is remorse or if it's repentance. And there's a difference between regret and repentance. But they say, it says, when the people heard this disastrous word. What was the disastrous word? The disastrous word that, that was that God's presence was not going to be among them any longer. They went into a panic. Because God says, if for a single moment I am with you, I will consume you. A single moment in Hebrew, you know how long that is? That long. I don't know if you can see me from the back. I probably couldn't see you if you were up here. The blink of an eye. If for a blink of an eye I'm with you, I will consume you. Then you come to verses 7 to 11 there, and we see just a glimmer of hope. Because there we realize that there is a temporary arrangement that has been made and there is some, uh, there is some connection still between heaven and earth because Moses pitches a tent outside the camp. And that's critical to know because God has just said, if I'm with you, I will consume you. So Moses pitches a tent outside the camp and there the cloud of God descends and God speaks to Moses. And the people caught on to this and they stood at the front of their tents every time that happened and they worshipped God because they realized that God's presence was still in that little tent. And as Moses prayed and as he spoke with God, he basically said to God, God, it's not just about me. It's about this people. And it's not good enough for me that your presence is with me. I want your presence with me and your people. And so we come to verses 7 to 11 and we realize that God concedes to the mediation of Moses and says, okay, I will go with you. As Moses talks with God, you get a sense of his unease. Yet he reminds God that he has, he and the people have been commanded by God to go up and conquer. That has not changed. But what had changed was the resources behind that command because now God had said, I will no longer go with you. Beloved, I don't want to go anywhere personally or as a church without the presence of God. I don't. I don't entirely understand what God is doing. And I don't understand entirely where God is going. But Moses said to God, it's not enough that we go up with an angel. We want to go up with you. You need to teach us your ways, God. You need to show us what you're doing. You need to show us what you're up to. You need to reveal to us where you intend to take us. We might ask it this way. Father, I don't know what your intentions are for these people, but remember they are your people and they need to be led and guided and directed by you. Beloved, the only way we can move forward as a church is if we are guaranteed of God's presence with us. I don't want to go in my own strength. I don't want to go in my own abilities because I don't have much strength and I certainly don't have many abilities. But I do know that if we go with God, we will be successful for the kingdom of God. So, loved ones, we need to be a presence-driven church. 
as we move ahead. What does that look like then? Well, I'm not entirely sure. But this much I I think I can say. How do we become a presence-driven church? What do we do in order for that to take place? Well, I think we need to be a, we need to seek God in prayer as a church. You, you, you have not because you ask not, the Bible says. And so what I want us to do as a church is simply say, God, would you show us what you're doing? Would you show us what you're working on in Oceanside? Would you show us what your plan is and let us know so that we can get on board with you and we can be involved with you and we can be assured then that your presence go with us? And there's sort of three ways that I think there are two ways that can happen. And these are personal prayers. And we are going to gather as a church again over the next couple of weeks, two or three times, maybe two times to pray corporately as a church. And we'll pray for a couple of things. One, a time of repentance. I don't know if there's anything, but maybe God will reveal something to us. It's always good to repent. It's always good to say, Spirit of God, search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And that goes for us corporately. But then I also want us to pray, God, would you show us where you are going? Would you show us where you're already working and how we can join you as a church? And then we'll pray, God, would your presence go with us? We don't want to do this in our own strength and our own inability. God, we want your presence to go with us. So we can start praying for God to show us what he's up to. Thirdly, we can consider how we might prepare for change. This one's a a little bit itchy, and I see the time, don't worry, we'll be out of here by lunchtime. (laughs) But that we consider how we might prepare for change. I had a whole bunch of things that I wanted to talk about here, and they were kind of thrown out the window this week as I was reading a little book, um, because I think it focused on one of the things that I, I really think we need to talk about as a church and consider. I talked about, I, I was thinking about spiritual change and organizational change and attitudinal change. I know from time to time I've heard people who are concerned because we have three services and we don't know anybody anymore and we can't connect with anybody anymore. Beloved, what if God added 100 or 200 people to our church this year? Are we going to hold back the work of God because we won't know them all? So what if we have to add a fourth service? There's small groups, there's choir, there's men's groups, there's women's groups, there's committees. There's lots of ways that you can get to know people. But if it's our desire to know everybody that holds us back from what God wants to do in this community, we need to change that. And we need to say, God, fill this building six, eight, ten times. Then we'll build four other buildings somewhere around the area and fill them as well. But we we need to change the way that we're thinking. But one of the biggest changes, I think, is attitudinally and spiritually. I've been reading this book, um, Prodigal God. Some of you have probably already read it. Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And it's on the the Luke 15 and the parable of the two brothers. And it's a refreshing look. Um, there's a fellow that I've read that that says some of what Tim is saying in this book. But let me just, at the risk of stretching us a little bit, read a little bit of what he says here. He says, there's two brothers in this story. Each represents a different way to be alienated from God and a different way to seek acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. We almost entirely, when we preach this parable, preach on the first son and forget the second son. He says, there are two groups of people who had come to listen to Jesus. First, there were tax collectors and sinners These men and women correspond to the younger brother. They observe neither the moral laws of the Bible nor the rules of ceremony, purity, 
followed by religious Jews, they engaged in wild living. Like the younger brother, they left home by leaving the traditional morality of their families and respectable society. In other words, they were wild. They were the wanton sinners around. And he said there's a second group of listeners, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were represented by the elder brother. They held to the traditional morality of their upbringing. They studied and obeyed the scripture. They worshiped faithfully and prayed constantly. He goes on and he says the target of this story are those who are the elder brothers. He wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness and how things are being destroyed or how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of people around them. goes on, this story reveals the destructive self-centeredness of the younger brother, but it also condemns the elder brother's moralistic life in the strongest terms. Jesus is saying that both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost. Both life paths are dead ends, and that every thought of the human race has had about how to connect with God has been wrong. And then let me read one more paragraph. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. That's a profound sentence. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. That's a profound statement. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even to our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated or the broken or marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to the younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. Loved ones, we need to continue to work on our prejudices and our attitudes towards those who are not anything like us. Because everybody needs to find Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter what their views are. But they need to be welcomed here just as you and I are welcomed here. We need to pray that God will give us a change in our hearts so that we would be able to embrace all who Christ embraces for the kingdom of God. The last thing, and I'm so sorry I've taken some time, but this is so critical. I don't know specifically what God has for us yet as a church, but we can start to do this. Will you commit to pray for three people that they would come to faith in Christ? I put an insert in the bulletin. And if you didn't get a bulletin, get one on the way out. And in the insert, I give you suggestions on how you might pray for people. On the back, I list 10 scriptures that you can also pray that these people might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a place on the piece of paper that you can just fill out three names. And if you want to fill out those names, you don't have to put the last names in, but give them to us as a church. Then when the men's prayer meeting gathers, when the pastors pray, when others pray, they can go get this basket and pull out a bunch of names and pray for them that day. But I'd like us to begin specifically. And I know it's a stretch for all of us. I had the opportunity to share the gospel last week and I begged away from it. And I 
frustrated by myself. This is a challenge for all of us, myself included. So will you pray this week that God would give you three people that you might begin praying specifically that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ and that God would give you an opportunity to be the one that shares the good news with them. And there's only one thing I ask. I ask that of those three people, one of them live in Oceanside. And you figure there's maybe 200 of us here today. If God even answers 50% of our prayer in the next year for people to come to faith, do you imagine the joy in the kingdom of heaven? And so would you take that and think about it and pray about it? And if you want to submit next week who you're praying for, we will pray with them. So as I say, as we move ahead, I don't want to go anywhere without the presence of the Lord. Would you pray with me? that God would fill us with his presence as a church. I don't want to go anywhere without prayer. I want to be a people that continue to pray and say, God, what is it that you have for us? Where is it that you want us to go in this community? I know there's a lot of preparation that needs to take place in our hearts. God, would you prepare us for what you are going to do in our community? And then finally, we can start praying for some people. That much we can do. So will you pray together with me for three people that in this next year, God would bring them into a saving relationship with him? Let's pray.